Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, why aren't there more minority coaches in sports? In most sports, minorities make up over half of the players, but a significantly less percentage of the people in general management, ownership, and the coaching staff. Why is that? Is it a problem? And what can be done to fix it? All that and more is coming up on today's episode of the show. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. John, how are you this week? Chad, I'm doing pretty well. Um, Premier League soccer is coming back next week. I am just enjoying, you know, the usual day-to-day life of slowly escaping quarantine, um, watching an absurd amount of TV, playing unacceptably nerdy strategy computer games because I'm just wasting my time and just unsure of the entire direction of my life, aside from this podcast, of course, um, and being frustrated at Arsenal's friendly performances in which we can't even beat second-tier English division sides. So That sounds like Arsenal's FA Cup run, too. All in all, kind of, you know, in general, Arsenal's, I've come to realize that Arsenal's inconsistent performances and general chaos kind of mirror the way I view my own life and the way kind of my ups and downs in life generally kind of form, I guess. So, you know, Arsenal kind of having the hope of returning to the Premier League and us being excited that, you know, the pandemic can't keep us down and then instantly losing to a side far worse than us is really, really kind of a mirror image of kind of how I feel like my life has kind of been going in quarantine that's that's i guess that's how i am doing right now how about you i'm doing good since the last time we recorded my wife got a job offer in raleigh and so uh, megan and i actually moved back to raleigh and i started my job as well um, at the radio broadcast company i'm working for we um are waiting for to move into our own apartment so we are back in my parents' house, so I'm recording from my dad's office yet again in Raleigh just for a little bit longer until we get our apartment figured out. But overall, I'm doing well, getting settled into my job, enjoying the return of some uh, PGA Tour golf as well as some soccer, which I know that before we get into our big conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about the soccer's coming back, the football. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've been doing well. Everything is good. Um, Before we get too deep into this, I did want to mention that um, if you follow us on social media, on Twitter, you will have seen that we have launched a blog that corresponds with our podcast. Sometimes it'll deal with the same issues where John and I can write more in-depth pieces about a topic we discuss in the podcast, or it can dive into completely different topics. And so um, I have two articles up on there now. John is working on one right now that'll be up early the next week. And Um, we're still working on getting our own custom link. So in the meantime, it's just on my Wix profile. But if you go to our Twitter uh, at crunch underscore tackles and scroll through there, you will be able to find a link to the articles that we've written. If you want to check those out. Yeah. You'll find that overall chat will probably write things a little faster than me, largely because all of the sports thoughts I have related to culture are vaguely philosophical in nature, really unnecessarily complicated. And so if you want to read my unnecessarily complicated musings on the sports world that you're really trying to escape the complexities of life from, then you should read my post. But otherwise, just only read Chad's because that's really all you're going to be getting from me. (laughs) Yeah. And the fun part about this blog as well is that uh, while a lot of it is still going to involve sports and culture, um, 
the, you know, it also can expand into some uh, game or season previews and recaps as, as John and I get back into watching soccer, which I guess transitioned us to the first thing we want to talk about, John, which is that the football is back. Yeah, not just in Germany. Um, we have La Liga in Spain, which has started. The Premier League starts back next week. Uh, the Copa Italia in Italy is underway with the Serie A starting soon. And the MLS announced their tournament plan. John, what are you looking forward to watching in this next like month or so? I'm just really excited for the MLS's back tournament that's starting July 8th as a self-contained thing in Orlando um, because my hometown team, Nashville Soccer Club, is going to be playing. And, you know, I've only got to see them play two games. This was supposed to be their inaugural season, and I was really excited to kind of finally root for a local side. And then suddenly coronavirus hit, and that kind of got waylaid. So I'm looking forward to kind of seeing those players play a little bit and um, – you know, I've rooted for Arsenal for the vast majority of my life, but they're a team in a city that I've been to one time. So it's kind of fun to finally root for a city that, you know, is mine, you know. So that's exciting. And the Premier League is starting and the sports world's kind of coming back to normal just a little bit. Yeah, if you are looking to get back into uh, soccer or want to start soccer for the first time, a couple things that I would say to make note of. First is the really, really close title race going on in Spain. Mm -hmm. Barcelona has a two-point lead on Real Madrid with just a few games to go. And so that race to the finish line is going to be uh, super compelling between those two, both obviously star-studded world-class teams. Uh, A little bit further down the table, though, Atletico Madrid – who just knocked out Liverpool from the Champions League, are fighting for Champions League qualification. And so they will be in an interesting battle as well. The second thing I would note is the top four race, which may become the top five race in the Premier League. If Manchester City has their Champions League ban upheld for financial fair play violations, then that means that with them knocked out, actually whatever team is in the fifth spot of the Premier League table will get a spot into the Champions League, which opens the door to a lot of teams. Right now, my club, Manchester United, sits in that spot, but there's two other clubs just two points back, and that is going to become a really, really contested race for that top five as well. The last thing I would point out is that, as John mentioned with the MLS's back tournament, that's going to be a group stage World Cup-style event, and Group F, John, features the El Trafico, LA Galaxy, and LAFC in the same group, uh, along with actually Seattle. I think it's either Seattle or Portland, I don't remember, and then Houston. And Houston has been really the, the thorn in the side of LA Galaxy in recent years. So that's going to be a really, really competitive group there in the MLS's back cup. Yeah, the unfortunate thing with that, though, is that the – LA star Carlos Vela will not be playing in this tournament because his, either his wife or his girlfriend is pregnant currently. And so he's going to be staying in California. So LAFC will have, you know, a major player lost in that regard, which is kind of, kind of, I think dampen maybe the really good chances LAFC would normally have, but they're still a strong team. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. So, um, and like, I don't know if we mentioned this, but uh, MLS is going to be the first of the major American sports to come back. So they have, they have won the race to getting back first, which means that they might have a little bit of time where they are the sport that everyone's watching um, as golf and other things 
start to trickle back in as well. <laughs> Obviously, like boxing and the UFC, which John hates, those are still going on. I hate golf too. You know that, but we don't. Well, you hate go- you hate golf because it's boring. You hate pugilism for different reasons. But. Well, yeah, I hate pugilism, which we still haven't done an episode on that. We need to do one eventually. But I hate pugilism because I think it's barbaric and gladiatorial and everything yeah. that civilized culture stands against. But that's we another can topic. Talk about that another time. <laughs> um, I hope you all enjoyed our conversation last week. It was obviously something, something that John and I put a lot of thought into. And at the end of that episode on racism and uh, athlete activism in regards to the Black Lives Matter movement, we wanted to kind of carry that conversation forward a little bit and talk about a place where we see racial disparities in sports. And that is in primarily minority representation in general management offices, as well as coaching staffs, and ultimately in ownership for major professional sports. This is a problem that is in the NFL. We see it in uh, European soccer. We see it in baseball and hockey, um, even basketball to a lesser extent. But it's still there. There's only one uh, minority owner in in basketball as well. And so, John, um, you know, this is an instance where athletes aren't just responding to racism outside of sports, but we really do see a racial disparity inside of sports. When did this first start becoming a conversation and something that was even on the radar of athletes and of these leagues that they have a problem with racial representation among their coaches? Yeah. So a big part of this, I guess, entering the conversation in a relevant way to the point where change started happening began in the early 2000s with the Rooney Rule, which was installed in the NFL in 2003. So the NFL kind of was the first league, in my understanding, that really started pushing to, um, I guess, actually make a change right in the underrepresentation. Um, so the Rooney Rule essentially it's named after Steelers chairman Dan Rooney and it basically required that when NFL teams were interviewing for head coach jobs, they had to interview one minority candidate. Um, and really, you know, it was just implemented to kind of try to, you know, open the playing field for um, black and minority coaches who were underrepresented in getting opportunities, you know, cause as we're going to talk about, as we kind of go through this topic, go through solutions is, you know, this is not like, a question of, you know, are certain coaches more qualified or underqualified or whatever? Like, this is ultimately an issue of, you know, if you are qualified, then you should have the opportunity equally, regardless of race, to have a job as a soccer head coach or an NFL head coach or a general manager or whatever, right? So, you know, there's a lot of different ways you kind of kind of approach that. But the Rooney Rule is kind of the starting point of this conversation that leagues both in England and in the NFL have tried to use, I guess, to begin not just having this conversation, but begin trying to push teams toward implementing those changes. Yeah, and it's important to note that the original intent of the Rooney Rule was not to make Uh, less qualified African-American coaches get jobs over more qualified white coaches. Really what the Rooney Rule assumed is that there were equally qualified African-American coaches, but they weren't getting an equal amount of uh, either publicity or notice by leagues. And so it was trying to correct that part of the disparity, not, not in a way that 
means that you're hiring less qualified coaches, but in a way where coaches who might not be as visible, who might not be as noticeable are getting an equal and a fair notice with white coaches. And John, this issue about the Rooney rule really came up again uh, earlier this month when the NFL owners was actually, they were debating a policy proposal that would actually incentivize NFL teams with draft compensation for either hiring a minority coach, interviewing a minority coach, or someone in a, for a general manager position. And this kind of, um, it caused some backlash people on both sides. On the one hand, they were saying, well, why do we have to incentivize teams to do the right thing anyway? You know, that just seems like, you know, now we're just bribing teams to do what they should be doing in the first place. It seems like it's un- like uh, almost demeaning to African-Americans. And on the other hand, there are people saying, well, why are we forcing teams to hire someone that they may not want to hire if they feel like they would rather have a white person? And so really they were getting backlash from both sides of this conversation. But uh, what did you kind of make of that policy initiative that the owners were considering? Yeah, I mean... Like we said already, you know, there are 32 NFL teams, four minority head coaches in the NFL. Only right. three African-American because Ron right. Rivera is a Hispanic. Yeah. So, you know, you have that disparity, obviously. You know, 75% of the players in the NFL are minorities, largely black. And that is just not represented at all in coaching and management, right? So you have that problem there that we're going to talk about. But I think that this suggestion is totally the wrong approach to solving this problem. And I'm glad they tabled it because I think it, why are you in trying to incentivize escaping bad behavior, right? If the issue here is that not just that people don't have the connections, but if we're saying that there's actually implicit prejudice in the hiring process of ignoring black applicants to be a head coach, and you're simply saying, you know, the way to solve this problem in NFL culture is giving people draft picks to incentivize them being less racist. You're not actually addressing the problem and you're basically just pandering to people's business practices to help them stop being racist. And that just to me, I I just don't understand why anyone would think that's a good idea at all. Yeah. And it also creates the, the original Rooney rule created a problem where you could kind of just have a quote unquote token African-American coach that you interviewed with no intention of actually hiring. And so then you filled your Rooney rule quota by interviewing a coach who was African-American, but you had no intention of actually hiring them. This was actually going to go a step forward. But ultimately, John, I think I do agree with you that, you know, in a way it seems wrong to incentivize teams to correct their bad behavior that they should have corrected anyway. Like this shouldn't be something that you need an incentive to do, right? This should be something where we know that there are great African-American coaches. You should be hiring them not because they're African-American because you get a draft pick, but because they give your team the best chance to win. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is ultimately a question of merit, right? We know that there are both in soccer as we're going to talk about later and in football that, you know, there are, black candidates who are equally qualified to the white candidates out there. But what this is doing is introducing a new factor to the question of merit, which is why people need to be hired in the first place and why there's a problem here. The people who have merit are not being represented because they're minorities, right? Introducing a whole new factor where all of a sudden this is no longer about merit, but about hiring people 
simply to get better draft picks ultimately is not solving the problem and it's just confusing the issue and ultimately is going to lead to poor hiring practices and you know not actually representing the black coaches who want to be given a fair chance yeah i think one more thing that is important to make note of john is i hear this argument a lot that well you know if three out of 32 nfl coaches are minority that's a little bit less than 10 percent of the number of coaches and the, the actual percentage of African-Americans in, in America is about 13%. So really that about equals <clears throat> what it would be per, proportionally to the entire U.S. population. But, John, that really is the wrong way of thinking because we know that this league, this NFL league, is primarily African-American players. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, over 75% of NFL players are African-American. And so this should be – this is really a situation where you um, – to have – real equality, you actually probably need to see more than what the proportional representation to the U.S. population is because we're dealing with a league where most of the players, most of the people with experience running an offense, running a defense, they would be, if they came from a playing background, they would most likely be African-American, 75% of them would. And so just having three out of 32 really isn't enough to really represent what the NFL is as an entity where there are so many african-american interests especially from a player perspective yeah i think i think part of the challenge is i know in soccer especially and i'm sure this is also true in american football is that the circles of coaching and management are very very small right like in soccer you have a very small pool of managers that are chosen from that are constantly rotating between teams and there's really very little like there's very few new people introduced into that pool to manage a new team. And if you're a top manager, like you are one of a very privileged few, most teams don't have one. And so as a minority coach, right, if you're not already in that kind of network, it's very difficult, even issues of race aside, right? If you haven't already kind of been implanted into that pool of connections, I guess you could say, right. It's very difficult to start establishing those connections and i think that kind of touches a little bit on this issue of where these coaches are coming from and in soccer a lot of these coaches most coaches are former players but i know you wanted to talk a little bit in the nfl that's not necessarily true yeah before we move to soccer uh my mentality is coming to this from an american sports perspective and something that has interested me is that the NFL, which is the league with the most African-American uh, or the, the least minority coaching representation besides the NHL, is also the league with the fewest uh, coaches who were also former professional players. So in Major League Baseball and the NHL and even the NBA, most of the coaches have played professionally in that league. Uh, 80, as of 2014, 83% of Major League Baseball managers played in the Major Leagues. 60% of NHL head coaches played in the NHL. 43% of NBA coaches played in the NBA. But in the NFL, only 19%, uh, six of the 32 head coaches actually played in the NFL. And that's, all, that's less than half of the amount of coaches in the NBA. And so um, really when you look at a, a situation like the MLB or like the NBA where there are more minority coaches, that's because they're drawing their head coaches from a playing pool, uh, from their pool of players who are also very diverse and also feature a lot of 
uh, minority players. You know, in Major League Baseball, only 42.5% of MLB players were white as of 2018. National Basketball Association is the same thing. 87% or 80.7% of players were people of color. And while the NFL also has over 70% minority players, those players are not getting coaching opportunities. Most of the NHL, uh, most of the, sorry, uh, NFL, National Football League, head coaching opportunities are coming from either college head coaching positions or offensive coordinator positions. And we actually see lots of really, really young white head coaches like Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and Cliff Kingsbury all getting opportunities either out of college or out of the offensive coordinator position while they're still in their 30s. And so there's something different about the NFL where being a player is not a consideration about whether or not you'd make a good head coach. And I don't really understand why that is, but it isn't the way that the rest of the sports leagues are. And the sports leagues are more represent, more representative when it comes to minority coaches. That is an interesting question. I guess that kind of points toward that question of ultimately, you know, how are you getting those minority coaches into the coaching pool in the NFL, right? Because we're talking about, you know, we mentioned that statistic a couple of times earlier that seven, over 70% of the NFL players are minorities, largely black, but that doesn't, that's not represented in management, right? Because to a large degree, you know, management is just isn't coming from that player pool at all to begin with, right? So I think, I think a big issue, and we're going to talk about this towards the end, is you know how do you incorporate those minority coaches looking for jobs into the networks of coaches? And honestly, like I think from our perspective, like we don't necessarily know all of the answers to that question. But I think that's an important point that I haven't seen discussed very much, but I think it needs to be emphasized more. Yeah. And John, as we transition a little bit, a bit to the premier league, uh, <clears throat> this stat, this statistic shocked me across 92 of the top English professional soccer teams, only six out of 92 had non-white coaches. Uh, I, I guess I was assuming like head coaches, like touchline managers. What do you make of a stat like that? Yeah, I mean, in the wake of everything that's been happening, um, Raheem Sterling, who's been very vocal, um, the England international forward for Manchester City, um, who's been very vocal about race in the past, very vocal about these struggles of young black players, especially in the Premier League, um, was talking recently about, you know, he thinks one of the big issues that the Premier League needs to address is the lack of the acronym that England uses is BAME, which is Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic um, for, you know, representation in the Premier League. There are roughly 25% Black or mixed race players in the Premier League. And Sterling, you know, he, he just said, you know, there needs, this problem needs to be addressed, right? If you have six non-white coaches across 92 teams, when one in four players is black or biracial or something, then, you know, there's not, there's a representation issue that's clearly a problem, right? And in an interview with BBC, Sterling discussed kind of as an example, 
four players of kind of the previous generation of England internationals in their kind of current careers. Um, Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard to a Chelsea icon and a Liverpool icon, you know, are now managing Chelsea and Rangers respectively. Um, they're both white. Andy Cole and Sol Campbell, also both Premier League staples um, of Chelsea and Arsenal, you know, have had much more mixed opportunities. Mm. Um, Sol Campbell, I think, got a chance to manage a Macclesfield, which is not even remotely on the same level as somewhere like Chelsea, you know, and he kind of used that to demonstrate, like, there's not an equal chance being given here, even though, like, no one would ever say that someone like Sol Campbell is not an icon. And obviously, like, this is not true 100% across the board. Like, some people like Terry Henry did get an opportunity um, both to manage with Belgium as an assistant and to manage at Monaco um, this past year. But, you know, the statistic demonstrates, like, there is a disparity here. And there have only been two Premier League managers in recent memory, Nuno Espirito Santo, who is at Wolves, and Chris Student, who was formerly a Brighton, who are minorities, you know? And I think it's probably a much more, almost a more glaring issue than it is even in the NFL, which is crazy. Yeah, it really is bizarre, John. And so when we start to look at solutions to this issue, I have to confess this, is, this might be the first podcast where I really don't know of a good solution. This is an area where I really am not an expert. And um, if I could defer you guys to someone who I really do think is a, does a good job explaining this issue um, on ESPN, he's on shows like First Take and Get Up, is a guy named Lewis Riddick. And Lewis Riddick was an NFL general manager. He's African-American. And he is very, very intelligent and speaks well on this subject. But from my perspective, when I think about solutions, I notice trends. And one of the trends that I've noticed as it relates to the NFL is that most head coaching positions come from offensive coordinating and most offensive coordinators played quarterback. And if you look at the head coaches in the NFL who did play, most of them played quarterback. If you look at uh, color commentators and sideline analysts and desk analysts for the NFL, people like uh, Troy Aikman, people like uh, Tony Romo, they also played quarterback. So when you move football to a more head coaching or analyst role, most of those people are quarterbacks. And for years, quarterbacks was a dominated position by white people. Um, there were almost no minority quarterbacks, but that isn't the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of the best quarterbacks in the league right now are people of <laughs> color. When you look at uh, Patrick Mahomes first and foremost, uh, Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, on uh, kind of a lower tier, you have a guy like Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, Cam Newton's a former NFL MVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, you look at guys like Michael Vick. Those are quarterbacks who are bringing a diversity to that position, and that position seems to be the fast track to a coaching or analyst opportunity. And so having more African-American quarterbacks is a good sign, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I I definitely think that things are improving over time, but people are saying, you know, it's not improving fast enough. And I think I'd like to kind of, to conclude this conversation, kind of point us back to the why here, because 
I think it's an important question and people aren't talking about it enough, in my opinion. I think people in their haste to come up with solutions and initiatives are not asking enough what the nuance of the why is there a problem to begin addressing it. And I think this really, when you have this issue of underrepresentation of minorities, you really have kind of two sides of the coin here. One is that there are people, I think, in sports as a whole who are genuinely discriminatory, you know, who maybe consciously, though under the cover, may interview a black coach just to get through a rule, but genuinely think that their white applicants are more qualified than their black applicants simply because they're white. You know, I think that probably is a reality. But, and then the other side of the coin is that maybe people aren't being hired simply because they don't have the same connections because they didn't have the connections before, right? There's already an established pool of managers and people can't find their way in as minorities. And that may not be deliberate, like actual prejudice, but the way sports have developed over time means that you no longer, you can't, I guess, get your foot into the door, so to speak. So you have to approach those two different problems differently. The first problem, right, is an inherently personal problem. And if you have an owner like that or someone hiring like that, ultimately you can only solve that if they're a closet racist and they're not, you know, like actually outing themselves. The only way you can actually solve that is by increasing personal relationships, you know, like education, humanization, right? Because ultimately prejudice is dehumanization of other people because of a race or an ethnicity or a country of origin or whatever. So that's one side of the problem. And like no initiative is ever going to change that, right? The other side is I think things like player coaching networks um, where you educate players who are interested in coaching after playing whatever sport they're in, I think is a great way to kind of, if owners and investors are interested in kind of hooking up with those education systems that could be formed, I think it's a great way to give players that opportunity, especially in a sport like soccer, where being a, man, a player, ex-player is so important. Um, but I think, again, we need to really think about when you come up with an initiative like the NFL, we, like we talked about earlier, like you came up with to begin with, you know, you really need to think about the why. And like I said, something like that is a clear example of you didn't look at the why there's a problem. Yeah. And I think to kind of go to your first point about who's making these decisions, when you look at the NFL, 31 of the 32 owners, the people responsible for hiring the general manager, the people responsible for hiring the head coach, 31 of them are white. And the, the other man is Mr. Khan, the Pakistani owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars. When you look at the NBA, 29 of the 30 owners are white. The other one being Michael Jordan of the Charlotte Hornets. Actually, if you look at the Hornets as a case study, having a minority owner has led to many more opportunities for minority people in the front office and in the coaching staff than in other programs. But to kind of go back to a conversation we had last week, John, something I've always thought about about Colin Kaepernick, something I've always asked myself is, how would his career be different if there was one black owner in the NFL? Would that person have been more likely to take a chance on him? And I would say the same thing about an African-American coach. You know, The fact is, 
I, I can't say whether any of those 31 white NFL owners are racist or have any bias. But the fact is, none of them are African-American. And, you know, having more equal representation among the ownership, you know, that's the, I guess, the Reagan economics, the top-down, trickle-down economic theory where, you know, leadership starts at the top. And so what you do at the ownership level is going to reflect the other areas of your league. And right now, the top level is a white male boys club in every sense of the way. Yeah, I agree. And I think changing kind of some of the, I guess, the representation within that ownership model is important. But I think, you know, with what we have right now, like I think we there's still changes that can be made. And I think, I don't think white ownership with the people who own the teams now, I don't think that should stop these changes from happening. The other main problem I have with what you just said is that you said the Jaguars. How do you say it? The Jaguars. Oh. Well. Like all rational people. Jaguars. Jaguar, no, the, that is the worst of all three options, I think. The Jaguars. I don't... Jaguars? Ja- uh, no, I think Jaguars Jag- is the worst. Jaggers? McJaggers? <laughs> the McJaggers? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, we've, we've collapsed here. We're going off the rails. I, I, I do think, you know, this is an issue that, that I don't understand fully. Yeah. It's something where I see really clearly in sports, but I don't have the answers to. And so um, as we kind of end this conversation, I just say, if anyone else has any ideas, any suggestions, obviously we're going to see this trend uh, change. You know, the race is something, mm-hmm. the awareness about race has never been higher than it is right now. And so if there's a time for change, that time is now. And I know John and I will both be interested to see what kind of change comes about. And I think we'll leave that part of the conversation there. And when we come back, John and I will return with VAR Corner, where we're handing out some clear and obvious errors and some observations this week. So stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Crunching Tackles, and John and I are back with our second segment of the podcast of our corner, where we're handing out some clear and obvious errors, some observations, and some thoughts about what we've seen in the sports world this week. John, uh, your topic kind of correlates to everything we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, so why don't you start us off? Yeah, so mine is the topic of Drew Brees. You know, so many people have talked about Drew Brees over the past couple of weeks, If you don't know, he kind of had an interview in which in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests starting and discussion of Colin Kaepernick, he said that he didn't believe that kneeling was respectful to the flag and to veterans, which is something that's been, you know, discussed since Colin Kaepernick first started kneeling in 2016. Um, not a new idea, but right in the wake of everything that's been happening, all of a sudden those comments were taken in an entirely new light. And he was shredded by everyone from his teammates to people in the media to the obviously toxic world of Twitter at large. Um, that pains me to this day. But, you know, he was flayed alive on Twitter and he came out and he apologized and he said, you know, this this was not the right time to post this. And I want to learn from the struggles of my black teammates and the black people around this country who are suffering. And 
you know, he's been very vocal in fighting racism. He's been very vocal even in pledging money to these efforts recently, even before he commented on any of this. Um, and so I think, you know, his heart's in the right place in all of this stuff. Um, I don't think it was the right time to say what he said. But I think, I guess this whole kind of issue has highlighted for me a problem in the world of the media, in the world of sports media, in the world of sports in general. And that is, we can't actually fix these issues, right, if we don't have a open dialogue where people are allowed to say what they think. And I don't think it was the right timing at all for Drew Brees to say what he did. But I think he's entitled as an athlete to have his opinion, just like I think that Colin Kaepernick was entirely entitled in right to protest in the manner he did. But, you know, what Drew Brees was saying was not an inherently racist thing, right? And I think it's important to delineate that, like, conversation in these matters is important in overcoming racism in our country, right? Because if there's no dialogue, we're not able to discuss what's actually the problem here in really vigorous, open, engaging dialogue is ultimately what is going to change people's minds and turn issues around in this country. And so I just, I really think that even though it was the wrong timing, I really think the way Drew Brees was attacked was not right. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about this and part of them I wrote for the Crunching Tackles blog. My first post was about the idea of the courage it takes as an athlete to speak out because of the backlash you might face. Mm -hmm. And from my research into the situation, I think a lot of the frustration toward Drew Brees came because of who he was and what his reputation has been in the black community. This is the man who donated millions of dollars after Hurricane Katrina, helping the black, primarily the black community in New Orleans. Right. He is absolutely beloved by that community. And so a lot of African-Americans felt betrayed not by their enemy but they felt betrayed by one of their friends and someone who has been an ally of the black community and while i i was disappointed with his initial comments about the flag but Mm -hmm. you also have to understand that the comments he was making were incredibly personal he was talking about what the flag meant to him and he specifically referenced what he saw when he looks at the flag his two grandfathers who each fought in world war ii and no one can really take that away from him, right? If that's what he sees, that's what he sees, and that's okay. But the disappointment is that for him not to realize that that's not what everyone else sees too. Right. And I don't appreciate the way that he has been used to mean something that he doesn't really mean. Uh, people who are saying that his apology was insincere, like Tucker Carlson who on his Fox News show said that he is the victim of political correctness and is now being used as propaganda by the Black Lives Matter movement, that is a completely irresponsible statement to say. Because as much as he may have meant what he said, I think his apologies have been sincere as well. And the comment I made on Twitter was, Drew Brees is publicly displaying his commitment to listen, learn, and change and people can benefit from his example. Because really he's going through an experience that a lot of white people and a lot of people are going through as we're confronting our own predispositions toward race and the things that we believe. And you know, he went through it very publicly, he went through it very harshly, 
but I think I see it. And I think he would say too, that he's come out of it a better man, more committed to doing what is right. And I applaud him for that. And if I could leave you all with the Drew Brees conversation, I leave you with this. Uh, Shannon Sharp does a show on undisputed with Skip Bayless and on Monday, this past Monday's episode of that show, he talked about a phone call that he, Drew Brees reached out to him and said, I would like to talk to you. Shannon Sharp is an African-American. He was a former NFL wide receiver. And Shannon Sharp on Undisputed talks about that conversation that he had with Drew Brees. And my main takeaway from that was just how sincere Drew Brees mm. was and his commitment to learn And to me, that spoke a lot about Drew Brees' character. Yeah, I just, I think it's important to judge people's intentions in these circumstances. And, you know, from everything I've heard, Drew Brees is an awesome guy. Um, And I know he wants to, as we've seen, you know, help the black community in any way he can in this current time. Um, And so I just think it's important as these conversations continue to happen over the next few years, you know, as they're extrapolated over time and we discussed, you know, how do we actually make lasting change? I think it's important that instead of shutting down dialogue when there are disagreements, not in issues of like, does Drew Brees like discriminate against his black teammates, but like, does he disagree on some kind of question of political protest? Like let's have those conversations. And I think he wants to have those conversations as we clearly saw. And I think, that kind of discussion needs to be encouraged. Um, And those conversations are what's going to actually solve this problem. Like I said before. And I think, I think what's happening in the world of social media and the media right now on both sides needs to be toned down. Yeah. I think that's true. If, If we want athletes to speak out, then we need to allow all athletes to speak out with the understanding that they're not all going to agree with me. They're not all going to agree with you and that's okay. And what we've seen with Drew Brees is that there has been a productive conversation that has come out of it with people learning and growing. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, My sports recommendation, my my bar corner is a recommendation this week, and it kind of speaks to the same issue. As we've seen this week with Drew Brees, as we've seen with Bubba Wallace, the only uh, African-American NASCAR driver petitioning NASCAR, and actually now the Confederate flag is banned from any NASCAR stadium, which is long overdue in my opinion. And honestly, it stuns me that that flag has ever flown in America um, in 2020. But uh, regardless, there's a really, really good book that I've been reading lately um, that I got a while ago. It's called The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America and the Politics of Patriotism by Howard Bryant. And it goes through a lot of the things that we talked about last week on the podcast, from the Olympics to Muhammad Ali to Jackie Robinson to Colin Kaepernick. It is a great read. It'll open your eyes to really what this podcast is about, the way that athletes are acting as activists, the way that they are making a difference. And I would encourage you all to check out that book as my sports recommendation this week. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to give that a read. Sounds interesting. Yeah, and I think that's what we've got for today's podcast, John. Before we get out of here, you had a special shout-out you wanted to give to uh, 
someone who has done something really, really wonderful for our podcast. Yeah. So shout out to my friend, Abby Hickman, who designed the very new podcast artwork that you will see when you click on this week's podcast. We did kind of an update um, for our social media branding and podcast branding everywhere you get your podcasts. So take a look at that. Uh, you can check out her Instagram page. We'll post a link to that. And uh, she's a great graphic designer. So if you guys need any graphic design work, make sure to hit her up. I know she loves taking projects. Yeah, our, our current uh, uh, podcast artwork is the result of my one graphic arts class. Uh, Abby is definitely going to be a much more professional, much more uh, just good overall podcast artwork yeah I'm like, unless of course you want chad and i's half an hour of uh in design work we literally spent 30 minutes in the newsroom putting together our previous logo so this is and it's really a step up it's a really really needed and good change along those notes make sure to continue to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from we are on all the podcast platforms. I don't have to name them all. You know them all. If if, if it exists, we're on it. Uh, Make sure to continue to follow us on Instagram at crunching underscore tackles, on Twitter at crunch underscore tackles. And if you have a chance, make sure to check out our blog. John and I are really excited to invest some time and some energy into that, getting some uh, writing content on our website. And you can find that on our Twitter. We would love to have you read those, comment, let us know what you think. There's also a place to uh, send us, send me an email and recommend podcast topics, or you can just DM us on Twitter or Instagram and do the same. We would love to talk about what you guys are interested in. And we're excited to bring you another episode of Crunching Tackles next week. And until then, take care, guys. All right. Cheers, guys.